0: Janet Forrest. Welcome to the shelves of yore. episodes of this season. Reference Library Associate Jim Borsleri and I perused through the Catalog of 1841. Now we're going to jump ahead to the Catalog of 1900. We'll talk about the remarkable woman who was hired to develop it, what volumes were in it, and how it compared to the 1841 Catalog. But first, to understand the Catalog of 1900, you need to understand a little bit about what happened in the six decades leading up to it. A major fire devastated the downtown area, the whaling industry went belly up, no pun intended, and world events and cultural clashes brought a wave of change to the shores of the Grey Lady. Let's start by having Jim bring us back to the late 1840s to see what was going on at the Athenaeum immediately after the Great Fire of 1846.
1: Well, the Athenaeum itself kind of struggled along. I mean, they obviously had had the fire in 1846. So there was a flurry to rebuild not just the building, but also to rebuild its collection. Because as we discussed in the past, almost everything was wiped out. It was still private, but now it was kind of struggling a little bit. Something that's interesting, and this is something Betsy Tyler had in her book that I thought was a great quote from Mariah Mitchell. And again, this is pre-fire. She sort of explained the books they were collecting. She said, let us buy not such books as the people want, but books above their want, and they will want to reach up to take what is put out for them. So in other words, it was very, very aspirational. But of course, after the fire, they were grateful for anything that arrived. And you can start to see sort of the change in population, because by 1853, uh, Mariah Mitchell and her journals complained that people are sort of drifting over to tastes that are in a more popular mode. And she singled out a book called Autobiography of an Actress. And she also complained that when people looked at the reference books, it was usually just men who were just trying to look for some vocational advancement rather than trying to, uh, shall we say, broaden their horizon. I mean, she was in many ways self-educated. She had a deep, deep love of learning. Uh, she learned astronomy directly from her father, but then she sort of took that in, on her own initiative, continued to learn more and more about the subject. You know, I think for her, it was a sign that this is definitely kind of a decline. It's said that at one point she hid a copy of Melville's Typee because she thought it was too racy and the young men were sort of looking at it for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so she was, you know, I, I don't think it'd be fair to say, say that she was judgmental, but she definitely was very, very sort of aspirational in what she wanted to sort of have out there. So obviously the fact that people were leaving and leaving in droves, uh, particularly after the gold rush, you know, I'm sure it affected her.
0: Well, and I imagine a lot of the people we talked about in the episode about exploring and exploration they would have been among the people that left. Is that oh, correct? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. They were they were for the most part gone. They would be the first ones out because, you know, that was sort of their lifeblood and, you know, the future just wasn't here.
0: So what else is happening after the fire? Because it's not just the library that burnt down, the whole town burnt down. So correct. what's going on after the 50s into the 60s?
1: Well, you know, physically quite a few buildings were rebuilt. And, you know, so there, there was that. But on the other hand, the outside economic situation was just getting worse and worse. If you look up to about the 1860s, as we flash forward a little bit, you know, the population suffered a big hit when everybody went to California. Many of them did not come back. Uh, in the late 1850s, they finally came up with a way to commercially drill for petroleum. And that almost overnight took out the demand for sperm oil, certainly for lighting. Then, of course, the Civil War hit, you know, as a consequence because of the Confederate raiders. Most of the American merchant marine reflagged. In other words, they stopped being American registered ships. They registered in other countries. And there was obviously the deprivation of the Civil War. Men went off to fight and the few whale ships that were out there were targets for the Confederate raiders. So the, the entire merchant marine and the whaling fleet never really kind of recovered. But on a deeper level, after the war, America kind of, almost literally turned its back on Nantucket. It started facing west and it started looking more towards opening up the west, building the railroads out west. That was where people thought the future was and that's where they thought the money was. So when you look at it, the island was use a modern phrase, almost hollowed out. You know, it had gone from being this kind of entrepreneurial Silicon Valley to this kind of quiet backwater that the railroads had literally bypassed. It's interesting because when you you look at most history books about this time, they usually say that the island kind of fell into a slumber and then it would sort of revive in the 20th century. But that's not really true and it's not really fair. Because if you look at the period from, let's say about, you know, the 1850s to about nineteen hundred. Uh, The people that were here were constantly looking for new opportunities. They knew that whaling had gone away, that they were in a decline, and they were just trying everything they could. They were trying manufacturing. They were trying farming. They were trying a variety of, of services. And meanwhile, they were also making improvements to the island. This is when the town got its water company. It's when they started putting in sewers. People were building their modern houses with central heating and indoor plumbing. We think of them now as Victorian, but that's really what they preferred to be in rather than the older houses. But what is also true at this point is number one, the decline was kind of subjective. It was bad for the people that were already here, but there was this small trickle of newcomers, sometimes new to America, who came to the island and took advantage of opportunities that were way better either than they had in the old country they left or also perhaps the urban slum that they were leaving as quickly as they could. But all that said, the population absolutely crashed. It went from 9,000 about 1840, and that was a busy seaport with plenty of visitors. By about 1900, it was under 3,000 and very few people were visiting. And that population would continue to drop until sometime in the mid 20th century. As we said, the people that were here, they were still struggling. They were trying their best to do the new ventures, but the physical isolation of the island, the fact that it was out to sea, that obviously railroads uh, weren't going to be connecting, that just really prevented any significant success. They just couldn't get around that.
0: Well, and if I remember correctly, there really wasn't even ferry service at this point. And if it was, it was took a forever and it was unreliable. So we've yeah, been trying is, to service. It's not like they had the tractor trailers for stop and shop coming back four forth three times a day.
1: That sort of hits the nail. And they had the economic reasons for even coming here were gone. So it was sort of here because it was here. I mean, yeah, there were people doing farming and they were doing fishing, but they were you know, they were fairly self-sufficient. So there just wasn't a demand for any boats to come out here. There was really, you know, there was really no reason.
0: Who stayed?
1: That's sort of interesting because it's kind of a self-selecting group. It's easy to say that, the, you know, the people that left were the ones that were looking for business opportunities elsewhere or wanted to sort of expand their interests. So the people that stayed were the people that liked the fact it was getting empty. So it could be some farmers, it could be people that were reliant enough that it didn't really matter what was going on around them. They could be fishermen, they could be doing uh, small carpentry work. There were definitely merchants because there were still people here and people needed stores. So they were hanging around and they became kind of a self-selecting population. So when you look at it by 1870, the end of the sixties, the population is now down to 4,000 from 9,000. So over half of the people that had grown up on Nantucket were now living somewhere else. And it's not surprising that what you also start to see at this moment is the the people that are left, they start looking to the past. This is when you start seeing the first histories of whaling being published. Our own Frederick Sanford started putting together his articles about here are the great whaling captains of the past, we really shouldn't forget them. So it's not really surprising that if you were to go to the Athenaeum in 1870, Even though the building was relatively new, it was in bad shape. The books as well as the physical plan itself were just being neglected. They just didn't have the money to fix it up. And the only glimmer on the horizon was to a lot of people a mixed blessing and they began to realize that they've tried everything else but the only thing left might be tourism.
0: What do you think their hesitation might have been?
1: I think they were kind of realistic about it because if you've gone from being, let's say a whale, if you owned a whaling refinery or you were a whaling captain and you had your investments, you were kind of in control of everything. The problem with tourism as they saw it, and this is not a knock against the hospitality industry, we're talking about the people who previously had lived the kind of life they had lived to suddenly be beholden to someone who just showed up for a boat fair. And now you have to be nice to them. I think that sort of graded on them a little bit.
0: <laughs> Do you think we've created their worst nightmare? <laughs>
1: uh, well, yeah. Well, this is where you get to be self-selecting again. But I think there's another factor here, and and that is that Nantucket, because of the end of the whaling industry and because it kind of clung to the past, they were now being seen as almost quaint, which you know is really kind of a denigrating way of looking at things. You know, if you go into a small town and say, Oh, everything here is so quaint what is that saying about the people?
0: Well, in all our buildings, and I I know you're grateful for this. I'm grateful for this, that we have this historic looking downtown. So as Mm -hmm. you walk up main street on the bricks, looking at the storefronts, it's not a reach to imagine what it would have been like in the 1800s or even the 1700s, Mm -hmm. this booming economy. And It must have been pretty humiliating and sad to watch that just completely decline, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, that's the reason why some of the people left, because it was just they want to go where the action is.
0: And a little bit unimaginable, uh, you know, when you're flying high and it's just like you never could imagine that in 30 years the population would have been cut in half. There's no, they had this single industry that went down the tubes.
1: Well, that's sort of the interesting thing. I think they could imagine it, because if you think about it, they had already gone through it a couple of times. I mean, the Revolutionary War almost wiped out the island. And the people that were here were literally starving, not just figuratively starving. War of 1812, that was like, you know, they could see the sword go whipping right over their head. They knew it was a close call. And then of course you had the financial meltdown of 1837. And in the background, they always knew the harbor silting over, New Bedford's looking more attractive. Everyone knew sooner or later they were going to figure out how to actually drill for petroleum. It was a ticking clock and the whales were getting scarce. So they always knew this day was coming. But I think you're right. The day it hit, that must have been, psychologically, it must have been a bit rough.
0: We're into the late, I believe, 1860s. They're starting to think about tourism and as an option. Uh-huh. They've tried everything else. Yep. So what happens as we get to the last 30 years of that century?
1: Well, it's kind of a good news, bad news, depending on how you look at it. It's true that in the background, people were coming to the island. They were sort of taken with, as you mentioned it, the sort of the desolation. And they were attracting visitors, but it was only a certain kind of visitor. On a very, very small scale, guest houses started opening up. People started coming. They asked for other services. And this immediately triggered plans for much, much more massive developments. And we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of building lots. But the problem was the people that were coming didn't want that. And this goes back to the thing you mentioned about the boat. The boats that did come here didn't come direct from probably New Bedford. They would stop first at Martha's Vineyard. And anybody who wanted to just get to the beach, or if they wanted to be around crowds, if they wanted any kind of density or excitement, they got off at Oak Bluffs. And in fact, there's a a little excerpt from someone who made the trip in the early 1880s, and they said nine out of 10 people got out at Oak Bluffs. And so once the ship pulled out, you know, the, the few folks that are looking around going, well, I guess we're the only ones. We're the ones that are going to go to Nantucket. And it was a very, very small group. But what drew them here was that emptiness. It was that almost sense of decay. And I think then is now, you know, there's some weird psychological, feeling of like, I am as far offshore as I can possibly get and still be on land. There's just something that I think we're all here because in some level that must appeal to us. And I think that's what was happening back in the 1870s and the 1880s. The other thing that was kind of interesting as people looked around is that, and this is a little tricky, but there's, there was a perception at least that Nantucket was attracting people of a quote, higher social class, now, there were doctors and lawyers on Nantucket. There were doctors and lawyers in the vineyard. There were college professors. But it, at least it seemed to everybody that there was a slightly higher percentage that were coming all the way out to Nantucket. And, and so, you know, that also kind of created a sort of self-perpetuating theory. And I think you hear this today. I mean, there's still people in the vineyard that go, Ah, Nantucket, they're a bunch of snobs. You know, and I think, <laughs> you know, it's that's kind of where we still have that kind of perception. But the downside is... When they came here, they very much came with the idea of the Nantucketers as being kind of quaint, and that kind of graded with some of, you know, some of the people that were here. And if you look at the artwork at the time, you know, if you look at something by Eastman Johnson, who had a place here and spent a good chunk of the year in the 1870s, abandoned stagecoaches with kids, it's the cranberry harvest. I mean, he did a series of them. You've probably seen them as people harvesting the cranberries with this impossible view of the town that we all know looking at it. But even at the time, it was an anachronism. He kind of staged this to sort of, you know, if you want a slightly more recent example, Norman Rockwell maybe, or like a Hallmark Channel Christmas special that sort of, oh, we're going back to the quaint small town with the quirky individuals. That's kind of what he was selling with his paintings. So, you know, you've got that element as well. And as you can imagine, to the Islanders, that was kind of a mixed blessing.
0: I've heard people say when you're leaving Nantucket, careful, Nantucket has long arms. It just stays with people, even when they go really far away or they leave forever, they start a new Mm -hmm. life somewhere else. Tell us about the people that still had connections with Nantucket, even though they had gone off to create other lives.
1: Yeah, this is sometimes called now the Nantucket Diaspora. Because as I said, it's a good chance if you surveyed the population in 1880, more native Nantucketers were off island than on. But the ones that did come back, they began to look at as sort of this vestige of a much simpler, better life because they were now confronting really the sort of high edge of what would be the Industrial Revolution of the 1870s and 1880s. This is the Gilded Age. Factories are springing up everywhere. People know that the West is still wild, but the railroads have almost filled it out. It's going to close soon. So there was this sense of this kind of end of the era. And now they start to look back on Nantucket as where it all began in this sort of wonderful sort of cradle for all these people that would move on and make their fortunes elsewhere. And quite a few did come back to retire. And actually, a few of them weren't even from here. Just to pick one example, there's the artist Elizabeth Rebecca Coffin who would later become a benefactor of the Coffin School and several of her works are at the NHA. She was born in Brooklyn and her family had moved to California and she trained in Europe, but ultimately she came back to Nantucket to live out the last decades of her life just because of this attraction, But and also because, you know, again, as an artist, the light and the emptiness kind of appealed to her.
0: Let's talk about another Coffin story. the The Coffin Family Reunion which was a huge event. It wasn't just a cookout with hot dogs and hamburgers.
1: No, it was a big deal. And it's actually the result of the two things we were just talking about. In other words, the rise in tourism uh, and the attempt to develop the properties combined with the diaspora, the the number of people that were from here. And I want to be kind of careful here because we'll see. the first reunion was held in 1882. And these days it is evolved into, as you said, a very happy, joyous kind of family event. But back in 1882, it was perceived a little differently, and that is because the two Coffin brothers, Henry and Charles, had inherited their father's whaling business, and they ran that uh, about as far as they could take it. But now that things had started to go turned down, they began to think about all the land that they sort of held in common out near Surfside, and they were massively involved in what was called the Surfside and Company development, and this was... Without exaggeration, close to a thousand lots. This involved a hotel. This involved the railroad that eventually would be built out there. And so there was some suspicion when they began to be some of the principals involved in this family reunion. And it turns out all the events are being held out at surfside. The train is being that the own is taking them out there. And those suspicions sort of arose, particularly among some of the islanders, that this was really just a marketing ploy. And it was Well, isn't it convenient that you're taking them out on your train, uh, out to your property, and why coffins? You know, and someone said, well, maybe we should do this as an annual event, and next year the Folgers can have their event on their property, and so forth and so on. But regardless of what their intent was, there were some items of lasting consequence. They weren't able to sell any of their lots, or if they sold any, they only sold one or two. But... Two things happened. One was the Coffin family participants absolutely did reconnect with the island. This was very, very strong. And they almost immediately began planning the next set of reunions. The other thing they did though, going around the island, they took a visit to what was then the very derelict Jethro Coffin House. And they suddenly sort of looked at it and said, no, wait, this is our ancestral home. We need to do something about this. We need to preserve this. And so plans were made to purchase the house, which they would do at the next reunion. And it would be restored somewhat back to how it looked in the early 1700s, and it was opened as a museum. Suddenly you see this drift away from Nantucket as this sort of quaint place to Nantucket as an historical place, as a place that has physically embodied in it a history that people wanted to start to preserve, which is something they were doing almost on a nationwide basis at this point. After the Hundred year anniversary of the American Revolution in 1776 In 1876, people started looking around everywhere and saying, oh, no, we need to preserve these these buildings. We need to preserve these objects of our past.
0: I think what's so interesting about this is what you see just in this one family and their quote unquote reunions is a, a clash of values. So you had Henry and Charles who were like, we need to sell this property and build it up and really develop real estate and make some money off and build up the tourist industry and then you have the other siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, whoever they were, saying, Oh, no, 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 we value the history. We need to be protecting our history, preserving mm-hmm. this piece of the island. It's just interesting to see that not much has changed.
1: <laughs> yeah, not much has. And the suicide development obviously went nowhere, but fortunately the Jared Coffin house was preserved. And you can look at it and say, well, you know, now we know it is the oldest house which it technically is. It's the oldest house still in its original location. You know, is it really the ancestral home? Well, it's the ancestral home to some of the coffins,
0: but that's good enough. While the coffins and other islanders were trying to figure out how to pull Nantucket out of this economic downturn, back at 1 Pearl Street, now India Street, the Athenaeum was going through its own transformation.
1: You know, the late 1860s, maybe 1870 was the absolute low point. Because there was this trickle of tourists, the Athenaeum was still a private museum, but in a private institution, but it now offered monthly memberships for our summer visitors. In 1870, there was a massive fundraising fair. Women were allowed to serve on the committee and the fair was a resounding success. People who had ties to Nantucket would come back. This was like a multi-day event. There was a band that was playing the whole time. People were selling crafts that they had made in the lobby of the building. And they actually, you know, made a fair amount of money doing this. By 1875, the first female trustees were elected. They were allowed to be shareholders, but now they were actually allowed to the board. And you start to see more books that might be considered to be of interest to exclusively for women readers. So you now start seeing the first books on the first women's conference, The women's suffrage conferences were starting to get going. All over the world, one of the books that they had was from the Women's Suffrage Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. You're starting to see a slight shift in in what they're doing, and now they're able to buy some more books, and the count is now up to about 6,000 volumes.
0: What other doors were opened, or who else was welcomed into the Athenaeum at that point?
1: Well, in 1889, high school students who were said to be in advanced classes were allowed to borrow books, but for a small fee. So you see the first crack in the idea of a public library, even as if it's for a fairly select group of high school students. And I run the
0: numbers for me. How oh, <laughs> many students was that?
1: Oh, pretty small. I mean, you know, when we look at the class sizes back then, six, seven, eight. class, you know, and that's, that's for the entire graduating class. That's not like just, you know, like a math class. That's, no, that's everybody in ninth grade. There's eight, there's eight people.
0: Bring us up to 1900. What's happening then on the Island and uh, at the Athenaeum?
1: Well, you are really sort of looking at two Nantuckets at this point, there's the summer Nantucket when people are coming up in slightly larger numbers. There are more guest houses. There are some hotels. The railroad is in full swing at that point. But from our perspective, it's a fairly short season. I mean, we now have the shoulder season. We think things begin, you know, even before Daffodil Weekend, and they go right through probably, well, really right through Christmas. Back then, it was pretty much June, July, August, and that was about it. So it was a much, much shorter season. And the year-round population was down to about 3,000. They were a little more ethnically mixed than there had been. St. Mary's Church was already up and running, but the population was still kind of trickled down a little bit, and it really wouldn't stabilize until the 1930 census.
0: And what was significant about this year for the Athenaeum?
1: Well, this was a big year because going back to 1892, there had been discussion among the proprietors about finally opening the library to the public. By this point, most even small towns had some form of public library, and the island was kind of feeling the need. They did have a vote at the proprietors meeting, and it was initially in 1892, voted down resoundingly. But after some further negotiations and working out on fees, a fine in April of 1900, they did have a meeting and the decision was made to actually open the library to the general public. It would still be private and the ownership was still by proprietors who acted as shareholders, but now anyone who wanted to could come in.
0: What What was the struggle? What was the hurdles they had to overcome to turn the name into a public library?
1: Inertia. But also, there's always been a kind of push-pull in terms of services that are offered on the island. If you go to town meeting in some ways, you can still sort of see that today. Like, well, do we really have to pay for it? But at the same time, if you look across the country, certainly Andrew Carnegie had begun seeding what were called the Carnegie Libraries or the Free Libraries. Other communities began to realize there was a value in this. There was a value to the democratic process. If you had a population that wasn't just literate, but also educated, and in some ways it was sort of an extension of, you know, the concept of a public education that everybody should receive at least a basic grounding in certain uh, skills and also in terms of civics. And having a public library available just sort of extended that out a little bit. But it was, you know, in some ways it was kind of a tough fight.
0: As we went through this conversation and as you touched on certain things, I saw so many parallels between the mid to late 1800s and Nantucket today. So you had a single industry. Then it was whaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have tourism and real estate, I guess, two, but highly connected. You had people that were coming back to retire. That's very much the case now. People that summered here for 40 years and now they're either buying a house instead of renting or they've owned a house for all these years and they're coming to retire and you have this tourism paradox you have the people that make their money off of tourism but also this feeling of like you're at the mercy of whoever gets off that boat
1: yeah you are and there's another parallel and that is they could all end tomorrow I think there's that same sense of like yeah it's a good time now and I don't want anyone to think we're being negative about the hospitality industry or we're being negative about people that come to visit. I mean, obviously, that's why we're able to be here. So that's, you know, we're not critical of that. But I think you're right. There is that sort of sense of this is great. How long is it going to last? And I think, you know, and what can we do to keep it from getting out of hand? There's always that element as well. So I think, yeah, there are definitely some parallels.
0: This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzileri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Please check the show notes for more information on the topics we discussed. If you want a closer look into the 1841 and 1900 catalogs, go visit Jim in the Great Hall. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We'd love for you to stop by and say hello. Visit us online at nantucketathnam.org. Join us next week to see what else is on the shelves of your...